Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. It is our first episode in March 2023. Big news coming out of Russia, Ukraine, China, Iran, World War III in general. You know what the show is about. We also, of course, have big news. We released the first episode of our show, Ether Talk. We're going to talk a little bit about that, let you know what is going on in our Substack. But Dmitry, how are you today? I'm doing great, Conrad. I'm very happy to be here. Of course, great developments, uh, both on World War Now, on the Substack. You definitely check out some of the um, new episodes that are being released and some of the articles being published, but as well as the news, really um, ex exciting news happening as well in the, you know world geopolitics. There's a lot to discuss on this in this episode here. And frankly, um, we've just wanted to thank everybody for your support over the last few months. 2023 has gone off, you know, completely... Uh, kind of blown out of proportion at least for us the support the feedback has been amazing so we just wanted to firstly thank everybody for um the feedback and support no really we do appreciate it especially those who are now paid on our Substack. we know that again i don't like to just pay for all sorts of things online and subscription services so we know it means a lot for you to choose to actually you know subscribe support us financially and we've released because of that you know the benefits for those who support us on our Substack. you get access to what I've said we were calling now Ether Hour. It is going to be our weekly bonus show. But that being said, it won't always be behind the paywall. What's going to happen is once a week, there will either be a paywalled episode of Ether Hour, that's the first episodes behind the paywall, or there will be extended time in our World War Now episode for that week where, you know, a bit more uncensored and the paid subscribers will be able to listen to that. And when that happens, there will be a free episode of Ether Hour for free subscribers. So don't worry. Everyone will get to listen to our more esoteric takes every once in a while. This last episode, of course, was about not yet canonized saints and people in the Orthodox Church. We talk about some martyrs in Russia of the past few decades. We talk about some Greek saints, people like Elder Ephraim, Father Seraphim Rose, who actually, right after we published that episode, was a bit, it's a bit complicated, but he was locally canonized in a Georgian diocese. So I think our timing on that release was, was pretty great. Yeah, Aether, of course, will, as Conrad mentioned, will provide uncensored takes on not just contemporary news like the uh, usual World War Now episodes, but also historical subjects, subjects about, you know, very sensitive, uh, very sensitive subjects on geopolitical issues, as well as cultural, maybe more philosophical, deeper tendencies around the world. There's certain subjects which, which of course, we believe should be available only to premium subscribers. That's why, of course, the some of the AFO Hour episodes are going to be behind the paywall, and we do appreciate any support. So those of you who do subscribe, enjoy the episodes, and uh, you know if there is there is a direct line of feedback available as well regarding exactly what you'd want to hear, as well as you know any comments about what we do produce in the, in those episodes. Uh, some of those content, some of the content where, of course, me and Conrad are personally passionate about. So there will always be uh, pretty broadly researched as well as you know. Um, given very, um, you know, the opinions are uh, sometimes pretty, pretty uh, to the point. Yeah, no, part of, we're also on Ether Hour, one of the ones when we make them free, we'll be sure to do those when we have guests on, because we know there are a lot of guests that people want to have on that aren't necessarily as educated as us on the war in Ukraine, World War Three, current geopolitical events, but we would love to talk to them about their knowledge of church tradition, their knowledge of saints, their knowledge of church history, Russian, Greek history, certain other, any sorts of things that we want to talk about. So we'll be sure to be, we've got a whole new content vector. We'll have that linked below for those who are interested in 
signing up for our paid Substack. Of course, there's a seven-day free trial, so if you want to listen to the full episode and ultimately cancel it, you can. But we really would appreciate your support there. Now, for the news, of course, for those interested in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, that's what we're going to start off with because there's been some absolutely um, intense developments, which myself and Conrad have actually waited for for about a couple of months now. Now, we knew some big things were going to happen in spring. Now, it seems that March of 2023 has begun uh, quite positively for the, at least the Russian Federation, which has successfully... I believe it almost ousted the Ukrainian uh, military out of Bakhmut. Now, Bakhmut has uh, almost completely been surrounded by the Wagner forces as well as Russian uh, artillery units. The last road out of Bakhmut, as you may have heard already, has been uh, has been almost completely shut down, allowing the Ukrainians to leave Bakhmut. At least the last you know, the last defenders of Bakhmut do have their final hours right now, probably as we're recording, are leaving Bakhmut as well as taking some of their artillery with them. And the Russians are closing in. Essentially, this bastion of Ukrainian defense is completely getting shut down. Now, why this is significant is because, well, all the I guess the entire... Um, last three months, at least since the beginning of December, and of the, on this particular conflict has been centered around this one city of Bakhmut, which the Russians refer to as Artyomovsk, which I guess we'll, we'll discuss the uh, difference between these two names and why that's significant and the optics behind this particular, um, this particular renaming in the future. Now, Bakhmut getting uh, taken by, by Wagner as well as the Russian artillery forces is significant in that... Um, the Ukrainians have already uh, delegated at least 14-plus brigades of infantry as well as their own artillery units, some some tank brigades, but not that many, to, to the defense of Bakhmut over the last three months. These numbers, of course, uh, range between the you know several hundred to thousands of troops that the Ukrainians have poured into the city. Now, losing all this uh, in a span of three months is, of course, a completely demoralized the Ukrainian military to the point where their minister of defense is officially, um, this is uh, Alexei Reznikov, has announced that, yes, this is actually, he admitted that the Russians have scored a small and perhaps significant victory, but the Ukrainians have chosen to submit the city to Russian rule, and they have decided that, well, it's not worth defending anymore, and Bakhmut has served this purpose. Now, what kind of a purpose that was, me and Conrad are not too sure, because frankly, many hundreds, if not thousands, of Ukrainian soldiers have died defending Bakhmut, and uh, to what particular purpose, we're not sure, because they didn't really, the Russians didn't even put in that much effort in sieging Bakhmut, to be honest. Like, all we saw was the Wagner mercenary battalion, uh, the, the Wagner mercenary group, uh, together with the Russian artillery um, you know, forces of the Russian Federation, essentially just concentrating their fire and their attention on the city. But the entire 300,000 large Russian force has been sitting in the back, simply waiting for the city to be taken. So again, uh, Conrad, are we seeing just a bunch of cope from the Ukrainian side that finally this uh, great stronghold of uh, Ukrainian nationalism has fallen to the Russians? That's what I'm kind of seeing out here. Well, I'm a bit confused as well in the sense that it's obvious that it's going to fall. It seems that rumors are that the order has been given for a strategic retreat, which I think a more strategic retreat would have been months ago. And it seems that, again, we've heard analysis. We know that this lies across some critical rail lines along the actual supply lines of the front. It's important. But as far as its actual topography, geography, it's not like it's the most critical position that Ukrainians need to defend, which leads me to question, like, is there some kind of bio lab like what's the more esoteric angle here you know what i mean like i'm not saying i have any evidence for this but what is uh is there something hiding like you know we talk about what could have been hiding in the depths of the 
metalworks plants of Mariupol. Is it a situation like that? Like, why are they wasting, you know, tens of thousands of people for this, you know? Again, it's not like Bakhmut is a Zaporozhia, Kharkov, you know, even even a Kherson, you know, these are, uh, this is a much smaller, smaller city. So I think, you know, there may be something more at play, and we may learn a bit more from that as the city is liberated. But again, we see Prigozhin, he's on rooftops just outside the city. We know there's only barely any roads at this point that the forces will be allowed to pull out of, and there's a lot of them, so they're going to need to, they're going to need to make sure that I'm sure they've calculated the time that they have, but I think, I think we're going to maybe learn a little bit more about what may have really been going on. And of course they're going to spin this as they're going to start saying all the stuff about how Bakhmut isn't a huge city and everything. It's like, well, if all of that is true, why didn't you just pull out however long ago? Because, you know, there's other, we're still, we're going to talk a little bit about Zaporozhia and some stuff in a little bit, but it seems that, yeah, there's, there's a lot of cope going around as well as perhaps a bit of fear over, I think we're going to learn what the real strategic value here was. Yeah, and the loss of Ukrainian uh, forces at Bakhmut is uh, was of course exemplified by the the recent you know forceful conscription of under eighteen year olds as well as really elderly folks, people basically in pension age, being conscripted. Most of them sent of course to Bakhmut. Now the evidence of this has recently been provided by Evgeny Prigozhin, who is the CEO of Wagner, the mercenary group which captured the city. Um, now, Evgeny Prigozhin, as Conrad mentioned, appeared on the rooftops of, on the outskirts of Bakhmut, which you know, is completely very bold of him, frankly. If the Ukrainians still had proper artillery or any sort of air force, they could have, of course, taken him out just on the rooftops of the of the you know tall apartment buildings. But nevertheless, the brave Prigozhin appears on the rooftops outside of Bakhmut, and with him, of course, besides the cameraman, he shows us two what seemingly are 16, 17 year old, two Ukrainian fellows and uh, an elderly Ukrainian man. And these people are dressed in uni military uniform of, of Ukrainian style. And uh, they, of course, tell Evgeny Prigozhin that they would like to return home and they would like uh, they would like their president, Zelensky, to take them back. And they ask Volodymyr to, of course, grant them amnesty uh, and clemency. Now, Evgeny Prigozhin, this is, a, of course, not... Probably Yevgeny Prigozhin in his typical uh, gangster, gangster-like fashion, which, frankly, that's probably his image at this point. He did kind of provide them uh, with like it. It's never really nice when you see POWs being forced to provide answers, but in this case, it's uh, it's important for the world to see that yes, the Ukrainians have been conscripting under eighteen-year-olds to fight, and yes, perhaps some of them have ended up in this. A meat grinder of a siege, such as Bakhmut has, and you know, seeing the old man there as well on the top of the building, fighting for the Ukrainian side. Now, was he a volunteer? Possibly. Um, was he conscripted forcefully? Very possibly as well, because we've seen the clips of Ukrainian, um, you know, military conscriptors basically, uh, you know, forcefully dragging people into cars, into vans, taking them to military outposts to dress them up and sending them to the front. Well, this is something straight out of like World War Two. Yeah, essentially like a World War Two World War Two documentary film. Uh, you know, just well, we commenting. Know that, uh, mm -hmm. Well, I'm just saying we know that. Speaking of World War Two kind of stuff, I mean, the Hungarians have talked about how the forced conscription in Transcarpathia is actually like an ethnic cleansing. You know, they're getting mm -hmm. rid of the ethnic Hungarians who, in the past, had voted with either a random tiny Hungarian party or supported the pro-Russian party because they didn't view, you know, increased Ukrainian separatism and identity as something positive for. Transcarpathian Hungarians. But regarding Bakhmut as well, we talked about how, again, Bakhmut is the uh, is the old imperial name of the city, actually. And of course, 
it wasn't the Soviet name. It was then renamed that in the 90s. But it, I believe the Soviet name is it Artemyovsk, I believe is that, that what it's called. And that's what the Rus- many Russians, at least not everyone, but a lot of Russians and forces in the Russian government are insisting on calling it this, which we find interesting is there are already a bunch of towns that were re- renamed in the 90s that the Ukrainians just completely made up that had no historical precedent. But for some reason, the Russians seem intent on giving the Ukrainians a casus belli on re-Sovietization or whatever by, you know, renaming some of these towns after Bolshevik scumbags as opposed to embracing the more imperial heritage. As we even see many people like, you know, the former head of Kherson Stremosov, as well as the, we talked about the president of Transnistria. These are, you know, these are the kind of Russian representatives on the, what you could call the frontier of the new Russian empire. And they're much more interested in imperial language than necessarily red talk. That's right. And we see that in those symbols as well used in the special military operation. We didn't see as many hammers and sickles as even perhaps during the 2014 uh, liberation war between, uh, you know, of Donetsk and Lugansk against the Ukrainian state. Now, over there, yes, we did see, you know, Nazbols from, you know, um, Nazbols from Russia fighting on the side of Donetsk and Lugansk. We saw national socialists of some sort. We saw people of uh, socialist democratic circles, actual communists from the KPRF participating in the defense of Donetsk and Lugansk from the Ukrainian uh, neo-Nazis under Poroshenko. So we saw all of that right after Maidan. But now, do we really see that many, um, f- you know, hammer and sickles around? No, we see flags of imperial eagles. We see flag, you know, the Russian imperial flag, the yellow, white, and black flag, which, you know, that is the Russian imperial flag. It's not, It has nothing to do with the Federation, nor does it have anything to do with the uh, history of the Soviet Union. And, and naturally, the best the best example of the old tsarist russian imperial heritage would be the uh the flags that we see on the tanks with the uh, face of christ right so the image of christ being there in combat in battle protecting the soldiers you know uh, sort of providing them that moral boost that look they're actually fighting for their christian brothers to defend their neighbors these are these are the real symbols we're seeing in this new special military operation, as opposed to Hammers and Sickles, which Artyomovsk really is a name which is a hammer and sickle name going back to the Bolsheviks and the USSR. And I'm not sure if that's worth resurrecting, frankly. And I'm not sure that's what the local Ukrainians would want anyway, right? The citizens of Bakhmut who have been all been evacuated, when they move back, do they want to move back to Bakhmut or would they like to return to a Russian Artyomovsk? I think a, a Russian Bakhmut would be a lot nicer, but that's just, you know, our sort of orthodox opinion which you know we're kind of basing on history and i don't think you know it's a good optics move as conrad would agree that to rename it to artemisk but again this may only be a temporary change based on the legislation of the donetsk uh people's republic which uh bakhmut actually falls under yeah in many ways like i mean if people want to go see the new heraldry for Kherson for zaporozhia region which i know the capitals would move to melitopol we're going to talk about that in a little bit but again, this is the reviving imperial, like from day one, the Russian Ministry of Defense was releasing imperial symbols before some of the territories were even liberated entirely, that they made it very clear what symbols they wanted to, they wanted to use. But now that we, you know, we've talked a little bit about Russia's, you know, the front line against into Ukraine, but unfortunately there's been, the Ukrainians have increased both just basic terror bombings and attacks into actual Russia border towns. I made this comment before we started recording. I think in many ways at this point, living in Luhansk, it, it, for, besides the fact that it's literally a Russian town already, like at this point you're safer behind the front lines inside the Russian Federation, in Luhansk even, than in some of these more northern 
uh, eastern border towns inside Russia. There's, of course, some other big things going on. Bryansk and everything. Dmitry, do you want to tap us in there? It's, it's some interesting stuff. Yeah, it's a very interesting developments from the border town uh, between Russia. So this town is located in an oblast in the far south, southwestern corner of Russia, essentially just north of Kiev. So if you draw a straight line north of Kiev, it'll essentially hit the oblast of Bryansk as well as the city. And next to it all, of course, it's it's right where Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine meet, essentially, geographically speaking, right? It's right there. And this border town, of course, hasn't been affected previously. Russians, of course, used it to send some of their tanks uh, southwards towards Ukraine in the early months of the um special military operation. Now, what's interesting is Bryansk was recently attacked. This is uh, on the 3rd and uh, I believe it was on the night of the 2nd and 3rd of March, um, going on to the 3rd of March. A group of uh, 53, I believe it was in the 50s or they claimed somewhere in the high 40s of Ukrainian, um, what can be described as Russian, uh, so pro-Ukrainian Russian neo-Nazis led by a very famous uh, right-wing Russian neo-Nazi, because named Denis Nikitin. Now, we'll talk about him more in a second in more detail. So Denis Nikitin led a small squad, similar to how Strelkov, essentially, this is the interesting analogy. It's almost like Strelkov led his squad from Crimea to Slavyansk in 2014 following the Maidan. And this Denis Nikitin led a squad of Russian neo-Nazis supported by Ukrainian federal agents from the SBU and the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense passed all the field mines into, this, into the Russian territory of Bryansk through Ukraine. So essentially we have a mercenary group, another neo-Nazi battalion of sorts, uh, funded and supported and armed by the Ukrainian state. But this time, this battalion is consisted of what seems to be ethnic Russians. Now, of course, the, the difference between ethnic Russians and Ukrainians is almost unnoticeable. And you may even say these are the same people group. So this is, of course, kind of redundant mentioning that. And in fact, I'm not sure anybody's really checked the identities of any of these 40 or 50 or so mercenaries except for their leader Denis Nikitin who was definitely a Russian. Uh, now the reason Denis Nikitin ended up in Ukraine was because in the 2010s he for his uh, very far-right neo-Nazi um, shall we say opinions and some of the uh, things he promoted in Russia itself he had to immigrate as a sort of political refugee to Kiev where he could continue some of his neo-Nazi uh, uh, propaganda and agitations which of course we understand Russia had really strict neo-Nazi laws back then it still does so that's, that's where Denis Nikitin came from. Now, I didn't realize that Denis Nikitin actually was planning an entire, and I don't think anybody realized he was planning a, a mercenary group of his own. And now this group has, of course, invaded the oblast of Bryansk on the 3rd of March. Now, what happened in Bryansk was, as soon as this group entered, this, entered the town, they didn't meet Russian security forces, they didn't meet um, Russian military. They, all they, they walked into the town, and a car with two older gentlemen, as well as the younger girl drove by, and they first first thing they did was they shot up the car, killing the two old men, and the young girl in the back was harmed as well. She was uh, she was hit by the spray of bullets. This this group, of course, infiltrated the town quickly. Uh, believe kind of established themselves in some form. The the only two casualties of this uh, particular event, this assault on the town, were the two older gentlemen and the girl. I think she's still in ICU. She was, uh, I believe, she's probably going to survive based on the news we've received now on the fifth of March as as of this recording. Hopefully, you know, uh, God willing, she does survive. But. So there's a couple casualties. Then this group, of course, retreats out of Bryansk back to Ukraine, and they announce that, yes, our goal is done. We're, we have shown that Russia Russia has been uh, demoralized, and the Russian border security is just not there. Like, And it's kind of true in a way. So they, they've officially, Denis Nikitin, the leader of this group, has inter, uh, he's 
posted a couple of interviews as well as he has an active telegram page where he posts his sort of uh, far-right uh, pro-Ukrainian neo-Nazi opinions and he officially mentioned that the point of this attack on Bryansk wasn't to harm the old gentlemen's in the car but it was to show that the Russian security on the border was actually fictitious the Russians were not actually protecting their own borders and they could simply waltz into this the Ukrainians could simply waltz into this town and he was saying that Putin did not care about the security of his own country so what we're seeing is it seems like this particular event was firstly it ended really badly with civilians getting getting killed and hurt and what ended up happening was the Ukrainian some of the Ukrainian politicians actually openly spoke out against against Nikitin and his group saying that hey we actually never supported you guys we never sanctioned this this is this has nothing to do with Ukraine with the Ukrainian military so what we're seeing here is on one hand Ukrainians are admitting that they support, you know, Azov Battalion, Kraken, Idar, all of these far-right, you know, the party of Swoboda, all these far-right groups which are ethnically Ukrainian. But as soon as a Russian neo-Nazi group appears, which seems to be supportive, supportive of Ukraine, the Ukrainians simply say, no, these guys are not with us. These are, these are ethnic Moscows. We don't care about them. So, again, what does this show Russians is that even if you hate Putin, even if you dislike the current Russian government, the Ukrainians are not your friends. They don't even care about even these 50 radical folks, even if they were ethnic Russians. This is what the Ukrainian state thinks of you. Even if you you know, have swastika tattoos and you throw up sick hiles and you even attack the Russian Federation you know, out of your own delusion, what this shows, what this example shows is that uh, the Ukrainian politicians, the Ukrainian leadership, they will wash their hands and they will deny knowing you. Like, this is this is, this is is really kind of showing and telling that the Ukrainians only care about seemingly their own Ukrainian neo-Nazis, not about foreign neo-Nazis coming to help them, especially Moscow neo-Nazis. So a very interesting story. And that, of course, Putin's... Putin's uh, approach to this has been very, very harsh. Of course, the security in Bryansk has been increased. And it's very sad that the innocent people have died. There has been, of course, some interviews from the locals that you know they've been they've been saying this was a pretty scary event with forty militants essentially just assaulting the town. Now, what needs to be mentioned as well is that um, the Russian side has now ha, has now ha, now almost has this unique propaganda that it could use against the, against the Ukrainian side. Essentially, they're just saying the neo Nazis are openly attacking Russian cities. We need to, of course, amplify the special military operation. And many people even call this a terrorist act, because in in, in many in, in many ways it was an attack on on a civilian town could be perhaps called a terrorist act by the Ukrainian backed ethnically Russian neo-Nazis. I know it's a, a bit of a mouthful, but that's essentially who these people are. The leader, of course, Nikitin, is related to some former Russian right-wing right wing folks who we may discuss on a later premium episode. some really interesting connections, but his nickname was White Rex. So if you see the name White Rex show up, that's who we're talking about here. He's the leader of this Russian neo-Nazi pro-Ukrainian group. Now, Again, very interesting sort of development. Uh, kind of a tragic one, but again, not many people got hurt. And in fact, it does seem to be a big optics battle between who's going to take, um, who's really going to benefit from this. Ukrainians seem to be denying that they've ever sanctioned this particular event. Russians are saying, well, this gives us, you know, even more reason to continue the special military operation because look at these neo-Nazis entering our territory. It's really quite stark. It's. I don't think this event particularly achieved anything for any pro-Ukrainians, I think, if anything, it's lowered their um, reputation, not just an international eyes, but also uh, for the Russians who maybe were somewhat sympathetic. No, it's um, it's a really big sort of 
optics battle in a, in a game. Of course, we know that the factionalism, whether it comes to anti-Semitism, philo-Semitism, or extreme forms of political expression on all sides in this world we live in of total crazy politicization in the internet, there's just insane amounts of factions on both sides. But the attack on Bryansk, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's really, at this point, it's really uniting. At this point, there's probably no more patriotic place in, in the world for any country than the Russian border. And at least with official Ukraine, because at one point, one of the attack victims in the shelling was a young 10-year-old boy named Fyodor, it's the Russian Fyodor, and he was able to save two young girls from the shelling and attack, and now all over the region, there's posters of him being put up, he's wounded in the hospital, the governor is going to give him a new, his family a new house, a medal of courage and everything, so this is becoming, you know, the war is really turning into a war here, this is the kind of stuff that you see, you know, when a not in a world war necessarily, but in a section of a world war, perhaps it's getting, it's getting sad. You know, more and more civilians are getting involved, and these are the kinds of things that leave lasting damage, which you know, both the sad physical damage and the death on a territory, as well as that kind of spiritual understanding. Like this is going to be, you know, I mean, look, I'm from the south. People still call it the War of Northern Aggression. It's been well over 150 years since all of that went down, but the wounds they're still there. So these are the kinds of things that will really shape a region and a culture and a people for generations to come. Naturally, and these exact wounds, which were, of course, caused upon the Ukrainian nation by the previous interruptions of and in interventions by the Austro-Hungarian special ops, as well as German special ops, and maybe even some Polish uh, particular special interests, which, of course, formed such Banderite opinions in Western Ukrainians. Now, these, these particular uh, I guess almost like tumors have grown into what we see today in this uh, uh, neo-Nazi slash progressive slash liberal Ukraine, because we we shouldn't forget the roots of, say, Polish nationalism and even uh, some Austro-Hungarian uh, separatism is, of course, it's this Western progressive view of how the world should be built in Russia, the Russian Empire, even partially the USSR was always this, I guess, the stone which the Western progressive vision, at least in even a central European style, progressive view couldn't exactly shift like the polish people were always a very republican minded folk like they were always very uh philo-semitic so to speak we all know um who invited certain type of subgroups into poland throughout history you should you know research the history of the banks history of usury things of this nature uh the, the polish have always been a sort of controversial group in central europe especially amongst christians now uh, despite any sort of uh, sympathies I have for Poland today, especially for their right-wing um, conservative policies, there is this to consider as well. Exactly why have Western Ukrainians degenerated into what they are today with these uh, this mixture of anti-Russian, neo-Nazi, <clears throat> almost artificial view, as well as uh, these liberal um, these liberal slash Republican slash Democratic tendencies. These are all very. Um, open-ended questions and i think a lot of historians do have answers it's just they're not very politically correct it's not really politically correct to answer them and of course it it's a stark reminder as to who exactly the leaders of ukraine are and what the relationship is to um <clears throat> some of the uh wider interests around the globe and some of these globalists we like to speak about so all of this is related of course now uh things like this uh things like the events in Bryansk, they only exemplify that yes this conflict is essentially anti-Russian. Russians, the goal is to kill any any type of Russian culture. It's to genocide Russians in Ukraine, just as they were genocided during the Maidan in Odessa, in Donetsk, in Lugansk. It's to genocide, it's to destroy the Russian Empire or even any speck of it left in the Ukrainian 
ethnos in the Ukrainian culture in the Ukrainian uh, state. That's that's at least my opinion. I think it, it's kind of like a, a culling of anything left over from from this great Orthodox power that once existed in this land that once built all these great cities like Bakhmut, Izum, Solidar, Kiev itself, of course. And, uh, you know, uh, shall we just mention the great Russian imperial city of Kharkov. So all these cities, of course, were built and funded by the Russian Empire. Now, the the powers which now control Ukraine naturally want to just cull or destroy any sort of any link uh, to that uh, once you know, fabled um, homeland that the Russians and Ukrainians shared. So naturally, they're going to provoke events such as Bryansk to cause more internal strife, more confusion. There's going to be questions in Russia, for example. Well, can Russians actually rise up against Putin? Can Russian right-wingers um, side with Ukraine against this Putin regime, which is obviously anti-Russian based on uh, you know some laws that were introduced in the 2010s? This is all a great provocation, probably funded by the CIA, Mossad, SBU. Russians, especially far-right Russians and even Orthodox Russians, should be aware of these sort of provocations. Bryansk is a great example of if you fail, they'll, 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 the globalists will abandon you, just as they've abandoned White Rex and his squad of neo Russian neo-Nazi sympathizers. Uh, these people aren't interested in anything Russian and any Russian success whatsoever. So it's not even... it's there's, There is no analogy in history for what's going on right now, except that it is a genocidal war, at least yeah, from what we can see right now since 2014. I mean, just think about the cultural program of Ukraine since both Lenin and, of course, since independence and especially since the Maidan. I mean, look, it's D, it's the complete destruction of the Russian language. It's the complete schism and restructuring of the church if it's not literally just going into communion with the Pope. You know, like this is, again, I'm not trying to be like, I'm not trying to sound like some kind of you know, liberal or globalist bemoaning, you know, genocide to provoke some, you know, provocation overseas. It's just the general definition, like what is happening to Russian culture in Ukraine, which both of us have been pretty clear on the show that Ukraine is Russia. I think like the Russians with Attitude guys had a good talk about this, that, you know, the recently that it's it's going to be really hard to to kind of get this this mind virus out of out of that region. And that's obviously, you know, we don't necessarily see a super high likelihood of like the far, far western parts of Ukraine, Lvov being, you know, taken by Russia and fully occupied just because that like that would be just a that would always be an insurgency point for the US to deploy their ideological foot soldiers because of the work they've done in the region and the money they've poured in and the cultural soft power they've utilized there for the past decades. Yeah, that's right. And of course, the people most suffering from this, we can see them in the footage of Bakhmut recently, which Prigozhin again showed that he's saying that, look, we actually care about all these Ukrainians that have been sent here to die. We unfortunately had to put them to death because they were defending Bakhmut, you know, uh, on, the beha on behalf of the Ukrainian state, and they were sent here to kill us. And he's showing these rows of wooden coffins and this is like recent footage on the 4th and 5th of may uh, march which was just released and these coffins are being uh, put into trucks and these trucks are taken to the ukrainian at least to the ukrainian side of the border and the bodies of the deceased ukrainians of course that the the corpses are still not running because it's still quite cold so there's very gnarly footage of corpses and of of dead ukrainians from bakhmut being taken to the ukrainian side in trucks and of course deposited there for the ukrainians to take them home 
to give them proper burials burials and so you know be that as well neo-nazi uh pagan burials or even orthodox burials of some sort but again it just shows that yeah the war has very covert very esoteric um goals behind it at the end of the day and we're not talking about the special military operation invasion war no we're talking about the particular genocidal conflict which was started uh in maidan of course was the active phase but probably the cultural war began all the way back in 1991 maybe even before that when lenin drew those ukrainian borders and the ukrainianization occurred in the 1920s that was probably the cultural war which began and this spilled over into a hot war in 2014 so long roots it's been long time coming frankly and uh these these bodies of course being sent by Prigozhin back to the Ukrainian side is is simply the outcome of this uh, great tragedy of the Ukrainian as well as Russian people. Now, we're going to, of course, keep a close eye on it. We know that it's about that time when we had talked about a big Russian offensive coming. But again, we want to, uh, the, as Bakhmut falls, that's really going to be where we're probably going to see a bit more of the picture become clear. Because again, as we've said, there's no real indication where along the front line the next big thing will happen. We have, we've been pretty clear about that. So I think we're going to be watching that very closely, but we'll get back, talk about Zaporozhia, Melitopol, probably a little bit more at the end, but we want to talk about Iran and China a little bit. Last week, we know big news with China, Wang Yi in Moscow meeting with Putin and Lavrov. We know Xi is going to be coming soon. Lukashenko was just in China, really solidifying his, his alliance there. I mean, who knows, maybe Belarus will want to be, will supply you know, microchips to China as the U.S. continues its Taiwan fiasco. Of course, the U.S. is ramping up the the Taiwan rhetoric, you know, doing all sorts of promises to send over soldiers and weapons. And, you know, Biden's twice now said that we're willing to fight for Taiwan despite us legally recognizing it as part of the People's Republic of China. That that's That's neither here nor there, I guess. But of course, big sanctions are coming, at least the big news of sanctions were going to come on China if they do supply Russia with weapons. And I think that the U.S. would be pretty broad on that. They might not even to be they might not even need to be provided with lethal aid necessarily from China for the U.S. and the EU, particularly to slap some sanctions on China and really start ramping up the anti-China rhetoric. Although in many ways we see like the right wing in America and some other places, they really didn't fall at. They've they've kind of come around on the Russia issue. They're not as interested in going to war with Russia, but they're very bellicose on China. So I'm wondering how the powers that be are going to kind of link the two to convince more people that, you know, even conservative Americans who are kind of waking up to the realities of our woke and blasphemous dumb military and our frivolous adventures overseas. When it comes to China, people might still be silly enough to to ship on out to the Pacific to defend an island that they've never been to. So I think it's all very interesting. Iran, of course, is going to be hit with even more sanctions. They are taking Russian oil that is, of course, sanctioned and selling it to all sorts of other third parties who are able to just totally shirk the U.S. sanctions. And this is, of course, causing big disruptions to the petrodollar. There's all sorts of energy trade now of crude oil and now refined Russian oil being purchased in currencies that are not the U.S. dollar, which we know the U.S. as the world reserve currency on the petrodollar system and OPEC. That is possibly the main mechanism that the U.S. uses to operate its global empire and control and be the world hegemon. So all this is, of course, very interesting. We know that Iran has been, between Iran, Belarus, and Syria, those are the three strongest supporters of Russia and the special, North Korea as well, the strongest supporters of Russia and the special 
military operation. All of those nations, of course, are close allies of China. So China seems to have slowly but surely realized that they need to throw in their hat with Russia somewhat here because this next 30, 40 years are going to be likely what leads to a direct confrontation with the West. So we see Iran and China becoming more and more the level of Russia and the disdain that the Western intelligence state has. It always has been like that, but those forces, Iran and China at least, are actually more despised in the public eye than Russia as well. So I think the powers that be are also trying to gin up you know, support for the general Western bloc by pointing out, oh yeah, remember, these guys are our enemies too. Yeah, that's right. And such low IQ provocations, such as the balloon, you know, flying over the US being, you know, them claiming it's a Chinese spy balloon. These, of course, were probably instigated, or at least the, you know, the theories were thrown out. This was just weeks ago uh, to, in, in order to at least pre-program the American public that, hey, we have this great enemy of China, which Donald Trump was talking about all the way back then when he was waging his trade war. But Donald Trump is a bad man as well, who's, you know, pro-Russia. So, you know, we can't really take his points, but we can create this new provocation of Chinese spies. Remember for the 5G uh, the 5G scare that, hey, China's producing 5G, they're going to spy on us. Again, um, the all of the various technological provocations, as well as now this, uh, you know, the UFO scandals, these were all, of course, made and put out there by special interests in the US, most likely, and, and the entire Western world, frankly, where all this news was being translated to create this uh, at least subconscious idea in the Western public that, hey, potentially China is this future troublemaker that we will need to deal with. And of course, provoking China at the same time by sending forces as well as um, <clears throat> armaments to Taiwan at an increased rate and politicians such as Nancy Pelosi threatening to visit Taiwan on several occasions, as well as other diplomats, of course, US diplomats visiting Taiwan very regularly and then making a big fuss over it to, of course, provoke China into some sort of premeditative action against no, not just Taiwan, but the United States. Very, you know, the provocations are quite, quite literal and quite perverse. Actually, it's it's very explicit, and of course, the U.S.'s actions generally have been quite explicit, including some of their actions in Ukraine, where they, you know, again recently they've agreed to provide Ukraine with another four hundred million dollars worth of aid. These aid packages are just enormous, which of course could help internal U.S. cities and prevent um, disasters such as the one we saw at. Uh, in uh, in Ohio, but you know, naturally, we have to send all that money overseas, all that hard-earned taxpayer dollars, all those hard-earned taxpayer fiat dollars, of course, based on a petro petrodollar system, which Conrad mentioned. Uh, all that needs to be sent to Ukraine overseas for money laundering purposes. Now, funny enough that China will probably benefit greatly from the U.S. as well as the EU losing Ukraine, because basically because of the overcommitment both of these great powers, the EU and the U.S., probably united by NATO, have committed to the Ukraine. China probably will eventually, or at least maybe covertly, support Russia in some sort of way. Not sure if they'll explicitly send weapons to Russia, for example, artillery, uh, ammunition, even some maybe some sort of aircraft that maybe Russia will purchase from them. I'm not sure if it'll get to that point, but perhaps we will see some sort of maybe uh, popular China-Russian Russian contracts at least being negotiated at some point. Maybe not gas-related, but perhaps in relation to other minerals in order to bolster the Russian economy, which frankly has been hit pretty hard by sanctions from the West. So the Russian economy has experienced, especially now a year later, there have been common economists in Russia who have actually stated, yeah, 2023 isn't going to be like 2022 
uh, growth is actually going to slow down significantly. We may see some problems later down the line. So Russia does need a strong economic ally, which China is. And of course, as Conrad mentioned, China does support Belarus, Iran, as well as Syria and some of these other pro-Russian, anti-Western countries. So China, of course, is probably the big brains behind the operation here. Or well, what they're going to do next is, um, you know, the ball's kind of up in the air. Uh, naturally, I don't think China's going to provide outright ammunition and, for example, military drones like the Geranium Shahid drones that were provided by Iran to Russia, which greatly provoked the West to the point where they probably had um, the Israeli stage a prov provocative attack upon Iran. Like, I, I think the, the level of triggering that's going on by the fact that these drones, they mentioned the damage they've caused since Srivikin has taken hold since the beginning of this podcast, uh, bombing all the electrical stations around Ukraine. This has caused a great disruption in the Ukrainian-Russian conflict. These particular Iranian drones, which only cost about a, maybe the price of an iPhone per drone, and they operate through you know very simple mechanisms. So can you imagine what China can produce for Russia long term? It's probably something, uh, quite a drastic impact that China can make. Uh, it's just a matter of time, of course, uh, and exactly what sanctions, which, again, can the EU sanction China and they threaten to? Yes, they can. Will the US actually, will the United States sanction China? I don't think so. Just the amount of trade going in and out. This isn't Donald Trump with his, you know, very strong trade war statements against China. Biden hasn't had this happen, Conrad. So in my opinion, at least, I don't think the U.S. really has what it takes. It doesn't have the gonads in order to, uh, you know, openly sanction China. I think the EU could be doing it for them as a sort of proxy. And it seems that, like the EU has been thrown under the bus in many cases. For example, when the Nord Stream went down, the German economy now is severely hindered. And the U.S. essentially is using the EU like their, I guess, like their puppet in a way to just take the brunt of all the, not not just the Russian economic you know, hits that Russia's been dealing to the EU for the gas through the, uh, all these other counter-sanctions. But yeah, it seems like the EU is going to be the one who suffers if they begin counter-sanctioning China and getting involved in all this uh, Asian uh, economic um, scandal. No, it's true. And just so everyone reminds as well, be sure to check out Ether Hour at the paid section, especially we talk about uh, the, ch the young child Vyacheslav, who's you know a controversial figure considered a saint by some. But he, as in previous episodes, we've talked about the prophecies of St. Seraphim of Aritza and other elders who have spoken of the dangers that come from being in a conflict with China. And the youth of Vyacheslav talks about those same kinds of things. And probably in the future articles and maybe even some episodes, we're going to talk about the growing Arctic front and how China is interested in, of course, allying with Russia so they can have more access to the Arctic frontier, which has natural resources, more of it, of course, as you know, as some permafrost recedes, more and more of it is becoming accessible. Russia, of course, has like the largest ship fleet of icebreakers in the world. And this is, of course, going to like, I, I would say that as World War Three starts to kick up more in the next decade and really starts to go hot, I mean, Arctic front could be a thing. I mean, these aren't these aren't beyond the realm of possibilities. And this, of course, Russia would behoove itself to not allow China to take some of its parts of Siberia, because then that would give, that would have a, if, if that were to happen and China and Russia were to not be on good terms, that would be another enemy it has to deal with up in that critical region. But when it comes to, you know, China actually supplying Russia with, with supplies, I think China, of course, is being very careful. China is remiss to use force in Taiwan because they know that the sooner the provocation is, I guess, implemented, the U.S. will use that as a pretext to attack them and china knows that it needs to build up more of its forces and wait as u.s decline continues for it to really i guess you could say make its move 
So that, that that's a big thing that's happening now. So yeah, check out Ether Hour. We talk a lot about that there. And I think the China-Russia thing is going to be, you know, it's an important relationship that needs to be watched and an even more important relationship, at least in the next few months that we don't think is, that we think is more in danger of possibly turning sour is in Turkey. And we, of course, had our great episode with David. Go back and watch that. Just really go deep on the prospects of the Turkish election, who's involved, what all's going on in Turkish politics. And we have a big development. It seems that the opposition coalition, the people that are hoping to unseat Erdogan as the president, they, they their candidate was revealed. You know, their, their, their nominee, I guess you could say, has been put forward. And uh, let's just say it's not exactly who who the people that want to defeat Erdogan are interested in it being realistic, want it to happen. Now, I need to find his name so I can read it properly, but go and listen. It's the it's the leader of the main opposition party, the more liberal party, the liberal Republican party, and he is considered very unpopular. He's considered kind of a kind of adult. He's considered like he kind of fumbles the bag all the time. And while he is, of course, the leader of the opposition, he has some of the broadest support among what you could call more liberal or secular Muslims and, and Turks and stuff, the broad support of generally more traditionally minded people and even some anti-Western people in Turkey are not interested in supporting him. And that being said, it's not to say that this isn't, this doesn't even make it perhaps even more controversial because he, we've posted about this and discussed it on World War Now before, he is actually just as bellicose on Greece even as Erdogan is. So he, there's really just no, it's not like suddenly Greece is going to be better and it's like total liberalism. He is, in many ways, the fulfillment, this pro, this politician himself is possibly the fulfillment of the St. Paisios prophecies. And it's a Kilik Doraglu. I'm sorry, I can't read the Turkish names, but that's that's how it is pronounced. We'll you know have some links in the description below, but he is kind of the ultimate pro-Westerner that at least could have feasibly been in the running to become the president of Turkey. And we know that Metropolitan Neofito said that once Erdogan falls, which he will, Kemalists, pro-Westerners will come into power and they will mess things up. They won't be experienced. But ultimately, there will still be those moves made on the Greek islands and those provocations from Turkey, which won't be going away, despite many people viewing Erdogan as the as kind of the most bellicose the most you know people think of him like putin so they think he's going to want to do his own smo on the greek islands or something like that but that's not going away once he falls all that's going to happen is all that stuff stays the same turkey's going to become a lot more homosexual of a society and also they're much more likely than to support ukraine but then if that does happen we kind of you know we know what's coming next we know that the time the time we can really wind up the clock and start watching it tick at that point because big things are going to happen that's right. And how I would describe the, the opposition leader, uh, Kemal Kilikdaroglu, is probably, if you can imagine, a Turkish nationalistic Bernie Sanders who fumbles the bag. Like, just as Bernie uh, ran a couple times, lost, um, again, took a lot of people, uh, you know, led them to a lose, uh, and essentially had the same liberal socialist, this, this mixture of liberalism, pro-LGBT, but also this weird American nationalism where he says he's going to help the working class and is somewhat socialist, but he's, again, pro-LGBT, pro-climate change, and, again, perhaps even anti... Like, Bernie Sanders was never pro-Russian either, so it's just weird um, kind of, like, 
Turkish, uh, again, Kemalism would be a great uh, term to describe because, of course, Kemal Ataturk, despite his uh, fervent Turkish nationalist views, was, of course, Freemason and the big friend of Lenin and the Bolsheviks, which who were also related to Freemasonry, of course, through the Petro-Soviet and uh, some of the other pre-1917 links. Freemasonry and the early, early Bolshevik party were very closely related, of course. So there is that overall overarching view that, you know, uh, this new Kemal, um, the leader of the Turkish opposition, may actually lose the election. But if he does win, it will bring in this possible, uh, you know, revelation of the prophecy, which we spoke about with David on the really uh, detailed and in-depth Turkish stream, which everybody, everyone, as Conrad said, should go watch if they really want to, you know, have, a, I guess, a preliminary look into what the potential Turkish politics will hold for the world, as well as the recent uh, developments for Erdogan. But yeah, if this guy, if this guy does beat Erdogan in the coming election in June of 2023, now the elections were not postponed yet, so we are looking still at June 2023. If uh, Kemal Kilikdar Daruglu does defeat Erdogan, we will see perhaps uh, at least some sort of preliminary fulfillment of these uh, of these great prophecies uh, and very scary prophecies actually not just for turkey but also for greece which recently greece has not has not done uh has not done a great job at sort of cementing its status as the i guess the stronghold of orthodoxy either like frankly its support for ukraine as well as its membership in nato and its enslavement to the imf as well as the rothschilds banking cartels is uh not really um what I think a lot of folks were looking at. But frankly, perhaps Greece will be freed through these great calamities which are to come, and maybe uh, there will be a great filtration of some sort, which we could, of course, all pray for, and pray that God's hand does work through these events and, of course, leads us all to a brighter future, at least where orthodoxy could flourish, not just in Europe, but also in the Middle East and the entire world. And the gospel, the orthodox gospel, could be preached to the entire world and through events such as this coming Turkish election, like may it be. Oh, may it be indeed. And I think in many ways, we were talking to David about this, both of us. This was the best thing that could happen for Erdogan. Like he, I know I keep saying it different ways, Erdogan, Erdogan, I watch too much the Duran, Alexander Mercurius, you know, he has me saying it how he says it. But he really couldn't have wished for a better option here because already the nationalist opposition party have basically said they're not really going to support Kemal. So we're we're all, they're already losing and shedding their their coalition power but again it's going to be interesting you can't just say Erdogan is you know going to totally pull up and win because he is at the low point of his popularity right now i want to read this interesting um pepe escobar he wrote a piece in strategic culture foundation about this and he's talking about it being in northern cyprus the akp having come to power at at a certain point back then and which a party in turkey during the 1999 earthquake and back then, in the Turkish-occupied part of Cyprus, people have said that the response was better even back then. The 1999 earthquake was terrible. And it says now that when it comes to you know Erdogan's chances, especially in the midst of the earthquake, uh, people are very angry. Erdogan's chances in the next election are very slim. He should not be elected again. Like, that's what people are kind of saying. Like, even... And if that's what people are saying, even people who might not have voted for you know, came all before, th th again, they may just do it now. So it's really going to be, I think it's going to be a very, very close election. And I said this to David, right now, it probably may be good to bet on Erdogan, but it really depends on how much the U.S. pours support into the opposition right now and the liberal Democrat, the liberal Republican Party and their candidate and how hard they're going to try to convince the Turkish people to kind of, you know, 
just get Erdogan out. You know, we're not trying to convince you necessarily that this guy is good, but you just need to get him out. You know, I think that's we're going to really see this U.S. State Department and the powers that be go hard. France as well. I wouldn't be surprised if they really get involved in this. Yeah, and for, and for those of you aware, um, there have been, of course, coloured revolutions, not just in the Middle East, but also countries such as uh, Eastern Europe, Ukraine. So essentially all around Turkey, coloured revolutions funded by the United States and funded by some Western covert powers have, of course, taken place. And some of them have been successful, for example, in Egypt, in Libya, naturally. Uh, the one in Ukraine, uh, all known as the Maidan, has been, of course, popular and active. So, And perhaps even the coup that occurred in Turkey a couple of years back was perhaps some sort of staged provocation from international or covert, you know, opportunistic, uh, opportunistic uh, agents, shall we say, and elements. Now, what's interesting is that if Erdogan, of course, loses to covert U.S. action, all, all this, of course, signifies is that the U.S. does not want a neutral Turkey at least in, in the events that are to come, not just in the Middle East, but also Eastern Europe, Turkey right now, the point, the most important factor of Turkey in recent, I guess in the last year, has been its neutrality on the Russia-Ukrainian conflict. Turkey is probably one of the most powerful countries in the Middle East at the moment, and its adjacency in the Black Sea to both Russia and Ukraine, it's essentially, it's... it's uh, its weapon stockpile, at least from the Cold War, from the time of NATO, as well as the ability of uh, its its missiles to reach both countries, and it's just the, the it's a perfectly positioned to impact the Russian and Ukraine conflict in the most staggering of ways, depending on which side it'll take. And I think it's frustrated the United States as well as NATO in general that Turkey really hasn't taken a side. In fact, the only Turkish uh, position that's been uh, in the only Turkish action we've seen in the war, frankly, has been the provision of uh, the, the, I guess, the Turkish ombudsman and the various Turkish uh, judicial, um, as well as uh, embassy uh, embassy officials providing a place where Ukrainians can meet Russians and decide upon truces. As you know, we saw the first uh, failed peace agreements from Ukraine and Russia actually p- potentially being signed in in Turkey, in Ankara, in Istanbul. Russian and, and Ukrainian diplomats meet in Turkey. Turkey is the neutral ground on on which people, you know, these two sides exchange POWs where peace talks have been organized throughout the year. Of course, all of them have failed to, to date, but it doesn't, but it does mean that Turkey has this particular um, role to play, at least in the world. And, you know, by God's grace, it hasn't been involved yet. And so I think it saved not just Russia, but Ukraine, a lot of grief. And the, of course, all of this uh, comes to, comes to a halt and comes to a certain un, un, uneasy, un, so these particular events, of course, are all threatened by the potential results of the 2023 June elections in Turkey. So that's why we're looking out for these elections. The future of not just Ukraine, but Russia and all of Eastern Europe may depend upon this great, once great Turkish Ottoman state, which, you know, and which road it will choose. And not just we're not just talking about prophecy, but just raw geopolitical troops that Turkey does have an impact upon not just the Black Sea, but all of them, the entire Middle East and Europe combined. Yeah, I think in many ways, Turkey, again, it's just taken on this role again as it before it was always this kind of oriental other that was exploited by the powers that be against the land empire of the Russian empire. And then it became the same thing to NATO. It became the southern missile flank that missiles are stationed at so that the USSR, ostensibly Russia, aren't able to get too cocky. And, you know, it's turned into, it's going to be that ever since. And Erdogan was kind of moving it perhaps away from that. And the US is really clamping down, trying to rein it back in and i think that's going to be i mean again this right-wing party throwing 
aside the opposition is a is a is going to be annoying the u.s isn't going to be happy about that but i think it's still going to be an uphill battle for for erdogan here but unless you have anything else you want to say about about turkey and all that we got to talk about zaporozhia and the the move of the capital to to melitopol yeah of course uh, one of the great acts of the uh, recently conducted by the government of Russian, the Russian Zaporozhye Oblast has been the the the, you know, the official governor of the oblast has signed a, you know a sort of constitutional level document stating that the capital of Zaporozhye has moved from the city of Zaporozhye, which is currently occupied by Ukraine. This is according to the Russian side. It has been moved to the city of Melitopol, which the Russians have been holding at least since uh, for at least eight months now. Now Melitopol is the second largest. Uh, city in the oblast of Zaporozhye after Zaporozhye itself. Zaporozhye is both the name of the region and the city, hence the repetition here. <laughs> Frankly, uh, it is very interesting that the capital move has been cond- uh, ha- has been moved, at least in Russian official documents, which, in my opinion, Conrad, what it symbolizes is the potential that the Russians perhaps uh, are seeing that, you know, at least in the Zaporozhye local government, they are seeing the potential that the war may at least delay, be delayed, not just for several months, perhaps even years, and the region does need to develop in some way without depending on this other city, which is on the other side of the border. So perhaps Russians are looking at the possibility of the borders not moving further, at least not in recent times. It does seem uh, very curious, or very, um, in a way, very... It's very poignant that it... A potential peace agreement may be reached. At least it's pointing towards the fact that maybe some sort of truce or some sort of... uh, Now, at least, this coinciding with the fall of Bakhmut is very curious, is what I'm trying to say. And a little bit suspicious, at least, for those of us who wish that perhaps Russia applies more pressure to Ukraine in order to stop not just the provocations against the Russian people and the genocide, but against, of course, uh, some of the anti-church actions, which a lot of Russian politicians have not mentioned in recent days. The persecution of the church, of course, continues. Russian priests uh, continue to be, you know, Russian clergymen, not just priests, but bishops of all kinds and all ranks have, of course, been pressured around around Ukraine. And Russia really hasn't been able to successfully counteract that unless the, the regions which Russia has, you know, taken control over, you know, of course, persecutions in those regions have stopped. But um, how will Russia react if it, you know, how does Russia deal with all of these layers of issues caused by the Ukrainian government if it simply signs a peace agreement, which um, perhaps this uh, particular move of the capital points towards. I'm not too sure. Maybe this is a hypothetical, but what's your particular opinion, Conrad? I guess to be charitable, I guess, to the Russians, you know, there has to be a capital somewhere. People live there. You know, you need to admit people are just living their lives. You need to administrate. You need to have laws. You need to have executives that can, you know, implement the laws. So obviously that has to happen. However, you know, it does, you know, show that at the very least you can strategically not recognize something like that to boost morale and to keep the fight going, I guess, in the minds of the people. So they've at least abandoned somewhat of that front. And I agree that could be a symbol that perhaps with the Chinese speaking as well, maybe Zaporozhye is going to be ceded back to the Ukrainians or some kind of neutral demilitarized zone or something, which again, from our perspective, especially would be relatively disastrous, I think, for Putin and especially the people in the church involved on the ground there. I don't think any of us want to see that that happen. Yeah, the other potential option, which I've heard mentioned by both Russian liberals as well as Russian right-wing circles, is that 
Melitopol needs to be named the capital of the oblast for one reason only, and it's that for Russians to not just move, of course, the government there, the, the local government, as well as the courts, but to reestablish some sort of order, and not just order, but prosperity, because Crimea, you know, Crimea, Lugansk, Donetsk, Mariupol, we're all seeing these regions being rebuilt and actually prospering in many ways. People in Crimea, as well as Donetsk and Lugansk, will start living a lot better under Russian, under Rus in the Russian, in the borders of the new Russian Federation, as opposed to how they were living in the Ukraine. So people in, Mel in Zaporozhye will be watching their former, I suppose, neighbors or their literal neighbors now in Melitopol. And they'll be watching how are these folks in Melitopol living under Russian rule? Are they enjoying themselves? Are they prospering? Is there real law enforcement? Are there neo-Nazis walking the streets? Is there forced conscription? If there isn't any of that and the people in Melitopol are prospering, perhaps the citizens of Zaporozhye itself, it's almost like a soft power move to show that, hey, in, in, in a way, it's what South Korea has been doing to the north, where they've been advertising their prosperity across the border, essentially showing, flashing their, you know, fancy technology as well as their uh, capitalistic way of life to the North Koreans stationed on the border, as well as some of the towns on the North Korean border, showing them that, hey, we're doing a lot better in South Korea than you are in the north. And maybe this is, I think this is probably the default, at least the despite whatever happens, whether it be a peaceful agreement or the war continues in a sort of slow fashion that it has been going on for, for the last, you know, five four, five to six months now, whatever the case, Melitopol will be prosperous as the head of the Zaporozhye Oblast, at least for now. And this will provide, of course, soft pressure upon the Ukrainians to maybe reconsider their allegiance to Zelensky and his progressive degenerate government. Of course, we'll, you know, eventually when there is perhaps governmental disruption in Ukraine, that'll raise a whole new host of questions as to the status of the people on the other side of this conflict from the Russians. But we saw Shoigu actually in the front lines in Donbass recently, which I think is a bit of an interesting development. I think at one point Putin talked about going to Donetsk sometime after Russian old calendar Christmas, but that never really materialized, which I think would have been a good idea. We see Shoigu there. Obviously, we know where Prigozhin is and where other people are, but do you see maybe more Russian diplomats and leaders visiting the region in the next few months? I think it would be beneficial. Like, we obviously see the same happening from the Ukrainian end, where you have the Minister of Defense visiting cities such as Izum and Zelensky visiting Izum and, uh, you know, cities of that sort that have been just taken freshly from the Russians. And Zelensky appears in the city merely days later and, of course, aren't completely unharassed. Now, we can't say the same for the Russian uh, political leaders such as, you know, Putin appearing in Donetsk, which is, you know, at, you know ten, only tens of kilometers away from the Ukrainian border, that uh, the Ukrainians won't just shoot a high Mars on his position without any sort of, uh, you know, any sort of warning. The Russians have respected, actually, a lot of the Ukrainian, uh, you know, the diplomatic diplomatic uh, calls, for example, even when Biden visited, you know, the bombardment, at least around uh, where Biden was arriving and, you know, Biden's particular um, area, you know, the bombardment hasn't touched him or any other of the other Americans. So the Russians actually held up, hold up their end of the deal. But how much can the Russians trust the Ukrainians? Shoigu, of course, I think most likely has appeared in the Donbass only because of uh, his recent, um, at least, uh, dropping of reputation. Now, it isn't, of course, when you're a minister of defense, how much does reputation really matter when you're literally on uh, the, the leader of the, uh, the the countries, the country, or essentially all of the, the the ministry of defense, when you're the CEO, you're managing everything, administering. It, it really isn't about reputation, but internally, perhaps it is. We don't know what what's happening in the Kremlin at the moment. 
um, there is a certain fog of war, you could call it a fog of politics happening internally. Um, and this was shown recently in the unfortunate uh, machinations with the ammunition, uh, with the artillery ammunition not being supplied to Wagner for an entire week and a half almost, which Prigozhin, of course, has achieved in the end. But that was, um, a lot of it was unfortunately blamed on on Shogu himself. So Shogu now appearing in Donbass to sort of bolster the spirits of the locals is probably a positive positive sign for the Russians. I'm hoping that more Russians will, of course, appear in uh, Kherson, in Crimea, more Russian politicians, celebrities, people of all sorts that... The locals do really need that support, especially those in Donetsk and Lugansk, which have been suffering for eight years, and you know they haven't been graced by the likes of Medvedev or Putin yet. But Shoigu is perhaps is the uh, third best option there. And for those that don't know, Shoigu is in a bit of hot water. His daughter's husband is some pro-Ukrainian loser, and they've been in like vacationing in the south of France and posting photos while he, you know, gives his terrible pro-Ukrainian analysis and shilling and everything. So he was getting in, Shorgi was getting in some hot water about all that. So that you're probably right that that might've influenced his decision to make it out to the front lines. But I mean, again, is he responsible for the opinions of his daughter? No. Should he probably be more of a patriarchal figure and just clamp down on so like for you're literally leading like the largest war in the world right now. Are you going to just let some of that stuff happen? It's a bit, I think it's a bit silly. Yeah, I think when when you're the minister of defense of the second largest and most powerful military in the world after the United States, and your daughter's busting it down on Instagram and TikTok, uh, as well as you know her husband as well, you know is uh, imitating um, all kinds of various sexual acts with other women on TikTok, doing the same and liking pro-Ukrainian Instagram posts. I'm really not sure if these uh this is the kind of um, imagery you want to be putting out there and you know kudos to people such as medvedev and putin who um you know kind of avoided all this controversy and scandal by simply keeping their families secret really uh we have other famous russian politicians as well as celebrities such as solovyov whose son is a um a male uh i just want to call him a male model in london at the moment and you know he said himself he said well i'd love to be conscripted but at the moment, I have a I have a modeling contract, so really I can't be conscripted because I'm busy modeling in London. Like if, things such as this, and Shoigu's daughter, of course, busting it down overseas. Like this is in Dubai. It's really not uh, not attractive. It's bad morale for the Russians. It's bad PR, and Ukrainians, of course, are making due of it. The copy paste thing, all these images, uh, these TikTok clips, they're being spread. It's it's really it's not very pretty. And we did see these sort of actions. This sort of propaganda was, of course, used during, you know, you could say world, the First World War when the Germans were spreading uh, pretty preposterous propaganda about the Russian imperial family and Rasputin, things of this nature, which weren't true. But nevertheless, this propaganda about the highest forms of leaders in in the opposing nation, they, it does work. When you show that your the leaders of your opponents are immoral characters or they have some sort of ties to immorality. It does negatively, it, it, it does provide some sort of effect, even if it's minor. I think all of this matters and Shogu, he really does need to um, bring his daughter back in line or bring her his son-in-law back in line. I do believe that's a, that's a must. I know it sounds harsh and perhaps, you know, they're adults, but yeah, I think certain things need to be done. No, I agree. And you're speaking of TikTok, the U.S. is trying to ban it, which, you know, on the one hand, TikTok is pretty is cancerous, but on the other hand, it's just a, an attempt by Silicon Valley to go after China. And in many ways, TikTok is a way that a lot of people get information and get red pilled. So I'm not necessarily in favor of the TikTok ban, despite the fact that it might rid us of you know 
thoughts, as some might call it in some regard. But before we wrap this up, I want to cover one more news item. The creator of the Sputnik vaccine, Andrei Botikov, was found strangled in his, I believe, Moscow or St. Petersburg apartment. And that, 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 that's, a, that's a pretty wild news development. I don't know if we have any details, but do you have, do you have thoughts on this initially, Dimitri? Yeah, I think it's pretty wild, Conrad, that we see Moscow as this uh, as not a safe place, at least for high-end Russians. For example, Alexander Dugin and Daria Dugina, um, the assassination attempt on them, and of course, it successfully killed Daria Dugina in 2022. Sadly, the terrorist act, but that occurred in Rublyovka, like perhaps 10 kilometers away from Putin's house as well as Medvedev's house. So we're talking about terrorist acts and these weird assassinations occurring literally in the heart of Russia, in its most protected. Um, you know, in its most protected sacred zones, this is really demoralizing. And frankly, despite, you know, how ineffective the Sputnik vaccine was, it wasn't mRNA, it wasn't an mRNA technology, so it probably was a lot more moral than, uh, you know, those th- those vaccines uh, created in the West, as well as by some of those more suspicious chemical pharmaceutical companies. Now, the 47-year-old virologist, uh, Andrei Botikov, was strangled, yes, in his Moscow apartment now, Again, the Russian Russian uh, prosecutor's prosecutor's office are investigating it actively. They're not sure why it has occurred, but again, very curious. Uh, there have been weird, very weird versions of people claiming that the CIA, you know, funded by Pfizer, have been sent to kill an opponent who's created a, an opposing vaccine. I don't think we're looking at uh, pharmaceutical company warfare. I think we're looking at either. Um, maybe he was going to leak the uh, inefficacy of the vaccine, which was frankly funded by the united russia party and it was promoted very heavily in moscow moscow being perhaps the most liberal russian city in general well most capitals are but moscow being the most liberal russian city tried to implement all of these uh very western culture um western covid restrictions back in the day and of course they were all uh they all failed to you know kind of entrench themselves so it is very interesting that maybe he was trying to leak some truth about the vaccine that the russians created perhaps well, I guess we won't find out anytime soon because this news is quite fresh, but it is a bit suspicious that a famous Russian virology ha- virologist has been strangled in the middle of the in the middle of the capital. I think it's uh, very curious to say the least. Yeah, I would be surprised if he may have had something to spill the spaghetti on a bit of the broader vaccine cabal. You know, we know there was a bit of you know national sharing of some of these different vaccines, so I wouldn't be surprised if maybe both with you know I'm sure there's medical malpractice and greed and horrible things going on in Russia. He was perhaps about to come up, whether for reasons of his conscience or reasons of other things, he may have been about to spill the beans on some certain things. So it's interesting. We'll be keeping up with that on our social media and everything. But Dimitri, is there anything you want to let us know about Bakhmut, about China, about Turkey, Zaporozhia before we wrap things up here? Yeah, I recommend everybody keep their eyes peeled, especially on the Russian-Ukrainian border recently. Um, uh, you know, the developments around Bakhmut as well as Zaporozhia have been quite intense. Now, that as soon as Bakhmut falls in the next 24 to 48 hours after the recording of this episode, possibly the episode when it goes live, Bakhmut will already be announced completely taken by the Russian forces. We will see uh, a great demoralizing drop in morale in the Ukrainian forces. You know, this will this is only because they've held Bakhmut for almost three, four months, you know, you know, quite valiantly, you could say. And they've even developed songs and there's, you know, clips online, TikToks about Bakhmut. There's YouTubers, Insta- Ukrainian Instagrammers talking about Bakhmut. So it's a great sort of uh, a, a, v- a very big loss for them. They shouldn't underplay it. Now, what this develops into, will it develop into the Great Spring Offensive, which me and Conrad have 
discussed previously on episodes now that the snow is falling and uh you know the snow's melting the russian can the russians actually utilize these 300,000 conscripts which they've trained up since september and october but not conscripts sorry just mobilized forces reserves uh these are trained professionals of course not fresh conscripts like what we see from the ukraine which frankly has conscripted close to a million soldiers already already you know getting people under the age of 18 and of course over the age of 65 well deep into pension age so i think we should be watching the russian ukrainian border very closely at least in this next second week of march because it is around that time that not just us but many people have predicted uh, the second wave of the smo may be taking place and again this may be following the fall of bakhmut and the demoralization the broad demoralization of the ukrainian military no, we're gonna we're gonna keep an eye on it closely, of course. And with all that being said, please follow us on Substack WorldWarNow.substack.com. Ether Hour coming every week. Be sure if you're interested, pay us at seven dollars a month for the basic membership to get access to all of that. Subscribers, paid subscribers only in the comment section. So if you comment, we will 100% answer. You can ask whatever questions you want. So get excited for that. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, World War Now. We're going to have more clips from these longer episodes up there shortly. Uh, be sure to follow us on Telegram, World War Now, Tele, T-E-L-E. Follow me on Twitter, Gnome Rad. Follow Dimitri, O Canonist. Uh, be sure to like this video. Make a Substack account and get the app if you can and leave a comment and like, uh, as well as do the same on YouTube. Share it with your friends. We really appreciate it. But with all of that... Uh, we'll see you next time, uh, and God bless. God bless, guys.